The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 95. Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial, in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We are in Joshua 22. This is uh, verses 10 through 20. It is entitled, The Lord God of Gods, Part 1. It's going to be three-part sermon, so I'm sorry you're not going to get a lot of information until the last sermon on what we are being told by the Lord. But for right now, Joshua 22, starting in verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan, on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead. And with him ten rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel, and each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel, to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that you have built for yourselves an altar, that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us, from which we are not cleansed till this day? although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us, but do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. There is a whole lot going on concerning the structure of Joshua 22, starting with verse 10. There is a chiasm that will continue through the last verse of the chapter. As a reminder, a chiasm is a literary device that begins with a thought, proceeds through a series of thoughts, that then normally will have an anchor or a pivot verse on which the chiasm hinges, and then it will give the same basic thoughts as it has just stated in reverse order. Chiasms are not limited to the words alone, though. They can repeat numbers, directions of travel, thoughts, grammatical structures, and more. Anything that is repeatable within the text can be a part of a chiasm. As for the one in this passage, we can go over it together. 
I found this on uh, November 22nd of 2007. I entitled it Joshua 22, 10 through 34, The Lord God of Gods. I gave it a subtitle of A Great Misunderstanding. Uh, the first part of it, you can see A, it says in 2210, impressive altar. And then in 2234, an altar called witness. B, preparation for war against the tribes across the Jordan. B, 2233, cancellation of war, preparation against the tribes across the Jordan. C, 2213, Phineas ascent. C, 2232, Phineas returns. D, 2216 through 18, turning away from the Lord, he will be angry with us. D, 2231, the Lord is among us. We are delivered from his hand. E, 2218, discussion of rebellion. E, 2229, denial of rebellion against the Lord. F, 2219, the land is defiled by an unauthorized altar. F, 2226 through 28, the land is not defiled. It is not an altar for sacrifice. G, 2220, wrath on Israel because of Ahan's trespass. G, 2223, if because of trespass, let God require it of us. And then the anchor verse of the entire chiasm, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods. As you can see, the thought develops to an anchor verse, which is the highlight of the passage. This is not unusual. Rather, it is quite often the case. The entire flood of Noah from Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9 forms a chiasm that anchors on the words, and God remembered Noah. The Bible is literally filled with chiasms. Entire websites have been developed to record them as they are found. Our text first comes from Psalm 135. It is verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. It's a great feeling to find a chiasm. See if anyone else has discovered it, and then to be confident that you are the first person to have ever known it existed. As Joshua was recorded almost 3,500 years ago, that's a long time for it to wait to be revealed. As I said, there's a lot going on in Joshua. Another interesting pattern is found in Joshua 22 as well. This deals with the naming of the tribes. The tribe of Manasseh, for example, is mentioned 10 times in this chapter. Five times it is referred to with an article, the Manasseh. Why would that be? All three tribes east of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, are mentioned repeatedly in the chapter. However, three times only Reuben and Gad are mentioned. Also, as we saw last week, two different words for tribe are used in the chapter. The word mate is used once in verse 1 when referring to the genealogical half-tribe of Manasseh. It is used once again when referring to the tribes west of the Jordan in verse 14. Every other use of the word is shevet, which speaks of the political aspect of the tribe. Here is a breakdown of those things relating to the tribes west of the Jordan. Of note is that when the article is used before Manasseh, ha-Manasseh, or the Manasseh, a separation is being highlighted. When it is not used, an inclusiveness is indicated. The difference is subtle, but it is evident. One, to the Reubenite, to the Gadite, and to half-tribe Mate Manasseh, verse 7, and to half-tribe Shevet, the Manasseh, verse 9, sons Reuben and sons Gad, and half-tribe Shevet, the Manasseh, verse 10, sons Reuben and sons Gad, and half-tribe Shevet, the Manasseh. Verse 11, sons Reuben, sons Gad, and half-tribe Shevet, the Manasseh. Verse 13, unto sons Reuben, and unto sons Gad, and unto half-tribe Shevet, Manasseh, without the article. Verse 15, unto sons Reuben, and unto sons Gad, and unto half-tribe Shevet, Manasseh. Verse 21, sons Reuben, and sons Gad, and half-tribe Shevet, the Manasseh. Verse 25, sons Reuben, and sons Gad. Verse 30, sons Reuben and sons Gad and sons Manasseh. Verse 31, unto sons Reuben and unto sons Gad and unto sons of Manasseh. Verse 32, from sons Reuben and from sons Gad. And then verse 33, sons Reuben and sons Gad. And there's a reason for every single thing and the way that it is presented here. As you read the Bible, 
make mental notes of patterns, eventually things will start to jump out at you and they will teach you about what is being conveyed. Pay attention, enjoy this precious word. After all, it is God's superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is a great, impressive altar. It is verses 10 through 13. In the previous passage, Joshua dismissed the tribes who were settled east of the Jordan. Upon their dismissal, the passage ended with these words. So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. The events that are to take place here occur after that. Verse 10, and when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, more precisely it reads, Va'yavou el Gililot hayarden asher be'eretz Canaan and went unto circles the Jordan, which in land Canaan. The men of these tribes departed from Joshua and came to the areas of the Jordan that are situated prior to crossing of the Jordan. The word gelilot signifies an area comprised within borders and thus a circuit. It comes from galal, meaning to roll away. It is the same root word as Gilgal and Galilee, both of which signify liberty as if a burden is rolled off of someone. In this case, it is a feminine plural construct, meaning circuits or regions, or more literally, circles. We could define it as liberties. The Jordan means the descender. Canaan signifies humbled, humiliated, or subdued. Typology is being developed within the literal historical story. Once in this location, verse 10, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. This is where the chiasm of this passage begins, referring to the impressive altar. The preposition means upon, above, or over, and that's very important for what's going to happen in this passage. Vayivnu bene Ruben ubene Gad vechatsi shevet hamnashe al hayarden mizbeach gadol lemare and built sons Reuben and sons Gad and half tribe the Manasseh upon the Jordan altar whopping to sight. The word for tribe shevet speaks of the political aspect of the tribe rather than mate the genealogical aspect. The matter being addressed is a matter of the religious, political, or tribal matters. The genealogy of the people is less important in this matter than how the people are conducting themselves. The battles to subdue Canaan have been completed. Thus, what they are doing is not unlike what Moses did after defeating Amalek. There it said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. What a great passage that was. Totally filled with pictures of Jesus. Moses built an altar as a testimony and a witness to what had happened and what was anticipated into the future. As for the names, Reuben means, see, a son. Gad means fortune. Manasseh means both to forget and from a debt. An altar is a place where man meets with God. In this case, it specifically says that they have built it upon, meaning above or over the Jordan. Most translations say near or by the Jordan. In fact, only Smith's literal translation properly rendered this preposition. Not only is it upon the Jordan, but it is massive. As it says, whopping to the sight. The words of the previous clause, which is in the land of Canaan, signify that the altar itself is built in Canaan proper. However, some scholars disagree with that based on the words of the next verse. Verse 11, now the children of Israel heard someone say, Though the intent is unchanged, it more literally reads, And heard sons Israel to say, 
Word came back to the other tribes of Israel, west of the Jordan, what had been built. Verse 11 continues, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar. It is not an altar, but the altar. Hine, banu bene Ruben, ubene Gad, vechatsi shevet hamnashe et hamizbeach. Behold, have built sons Reuben, and sons Gad, and half-tribe, the Manasseh, the altar. The reason this is important is because it appears obvious to the other tribes that this specific altar is intended to replace the altar of the Lord. That will be seen more clearly in verse 22-28. With that now understood, the next wording is very precise, but it is also very argued over. Verse 11 continues, On the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region of the Jordan, on the children of Israel's side. The same preposition, El, meaning in, into, or toward, is used three times in this one single clause. El mu eretz Canaan, el gelilot hayarden, el ever bene Yisrael. Into, front, land, Canaan. Into, circles, the Jordan. Into, side, sons, Israel. Some scholars demand that the word signify over against, and thus on the other side of the Jordan. But the wording does not seem to support this conclusion. The same phrase, el mul, was seen in Joshua 8, verse 33, where it said, his half toward front, el mul, Mount Gerizim, and his half toward front, el mul, Mount Ebal. There the meaning was that the people were standing in front of each mountain facing the ark. Thus, the use here indicates the altar is in front of the land of Canaan as well. It is within its borders. This is more evidently supported by the thought expressed in verse 25. The purpose of building the altar is to validate a right that has already been granted. Despite the scholarly disagreement, the use of the preposition al, above, on, over, in verse 10, tells us that regardless of which side of the Jordan this altar is actually on, it is to be taken as if it is resting above the Jordan. Considering that the Jordan is symbolic of Christ Jesus, this is the important thought to be considered. Before I go on, I'll tell the people that are visiting that have never been here, the Jordan pictures Jesus. It starts in Mount Hermon, which is, means sacred, okay? It's a picture of heaven. It's always snow-capped. It's a picture of the purity of where Christ came from. It descends down into the land of Israel. It comes into the land of Dan, which means judge. He is the judge coming to the land of Israel. It flows down into a, a, a low area. It goes into the Sea of Galilee, and it kind of meanders there. Because you have the Sea of Galilee, it takes a long time to get through it, and that is where Jesus' ministry was mostly focused on. It's a picture of his time in the area of the Galilee. And then it goes down, and it zigzags all the way. It's a very short river, but it zigzags so much that it makes this very long river. And that's a picture of Christ going all through Israel, back and forth, as he had his ministry. It goes down to the Dead Sea, okay? That's a picture of Christ's death, his, uh, the ending of his life, and then it goes no further. It simply ascends, and that's a picture of the resurrection of Christ. There are many other pictures of that. That's just a short snapshot, so you can see what is going on with the Jordan. Everything about the topology of Israel points to the work of Jesus Christ. With that, it next says, verse 12, And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. The chiasm continues here with the preparation for war. It says, Vayishmeru bene Yisrael, veyikalu kal adat bene Yisrael, Shiloh laalot alehem latzava, and heard sons Israel and assembled all congregation, sons Israel, Shiloh, to arise against them to the war. There was to be one place of worship and for bringing sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. That was currently located in Shiloh, or tranquility. This is explicitly stated in the law, Deuteronomy 12. You shall not do at all as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. 
for as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. As this is perceived to be a violation of the law, Israel has met at Shiloh, the place authorized for such offerings, and it is from here that the gathering determined to go against the tribes east of the Jordan. However, before they actually send out the armies, they determined to first send a delegation to determine the situation. Verse 13, then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead. This is the first time the article has been omitted from before the name of Manasseh, since the first verse of the chapter. And sent sons Israel, unto sons Reuben, and unto sons Gad, and unto half-tribe Manasseh, unto land the Gilead, Phinehas, son Eleazar the priest. The omission of the article is because the other half-tribe of Manasseh is among the delegation being sent. This will be seen in the next verse. Hence, there is a sense of inclusiveness rather than division. With the naming of Phinehas, another step in the unfolding chiasm is given. The name Pinchas, or Phinehas, means mouth of brass, and thus it means mouth of judgment, because brass signifies judgment. Eliezer means whom God helps. This is the first mention of Phinehas in the book of Joshua. As the son of the high priest, he is sent on behalf of the congregation. Even if Eliezer had other sons, Phinehas had proven himself zealous for the Lord in Numbers 25 when he ran a spear through the Israeli man and the Midianite woman who were in bed together. Because of his deed, the account said, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. The Gilead means the perpetual fountain. Along with Phineas, others accompanied him. What is this treachery that you have done? What is this that you have committed against the Lord? This is not acceptable, not from anyone. You have rebelled against his word. What is it that we can do to make things right? How shall we deal with what's been done? Your transgressions are exposed in the light. Beside our God, there is to be none. Just wait. You have misunderstood what we have done. Our actions were accomplished with pure intent. We have put our trust in the Holy One. Let us explain what our actions have meant. Our second thought today is do not rebel against the Lord. It's verses 14 through 20. Verse 14, and with him 10 rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And ten leaders with him, leader one, leader one, to house father, to all tribes Israel. The nasi signifies one who is lifted up. He is a leader, and this would be the main leader in the tribe of each of the father's houses. These would be the leaders of the nine tribes and the half-tribe residing in Canaan. Ten signifies the perfection of divine order. 
It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. Phineas cannot be considered an eleventh. Rather, it is ten plus one. He is not representing Levi, but rather the spiritual leadership among the tribes. Also, the word for tribe is mate, referring to the genealogical aspect of the tribes. It's gone from Shevet to mate. Why would it be? As seen in the last sermon, all of the uses of Shevet pertain to the eastern half-tribe of Manasseh. One use of Mate, which was in verse 1, also refers to the eastern half-tribe of Manasseh, and the other, which is seen right here, pertains to the ten tribes west of the Jordan. This structure reveals the political nature of what is transpiring, but it also reveals that it is still a family matter concerning tribes of Israel. This current use of Mate is referring to the family structure of the Western tribes, and it is further defined saying, verse 14 going on, and each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. A literal reading is, and man head their fathers, they to thousands of Israel. This would be the highest official of the tribe who presided over all lesser divisions within the tribe as proposed by Jethro all the way back in Exodus 18 and to which Moses agreed to. Of these men, verse 15, then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, the article before Manasseh is once again not used here. This is because Manasseh west of the Jordan is a part of the delegation. All of the 12 tribes are represented along with Phineas the priest. Despite this, the political rather than the genealogical aspect of the half-tribe, Shevet of Manasseh, is indicated. Understanding these nuances, the dialogue between the sides begins with these words. Verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. It is an amazing declaration. Kol amru kol adat Yehovah. Thus says whole congregation Yehovah. They don't say the whole congregation of Israel. They are speaking to a part of Israel. But they now claim they are the entirety of the congregation of the Lord. This is based on the assumption that these being addressed have cut themselves off from the Lord through a treacherous act. As it says, verse 16 continues, what treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel? What the transgressing, the this, which you have transgressed in God Israel. The word ma'al signifies to transgress, act treacherously or unfaithfully, and so on. It was first used in the book of Leviticus. It could be considered a priestly word where one acts in a manner that violates the stipulations of a covenant. It was used in Numbers 5 concerning a woman who defiled herself by being unfaithful to her husband. You can see the covenant. This is what is being ascribed to these two and a half tribes right now. They have supposedly spurned their God by building an unapproved altar, which has caused them, verse 16 continues, to turn away this day from following the Lord. This is a portion of the chiasm where they have turned away from the Lord. La shuv hayom me'achare Yehovah, to turn back the day from after Yehovah. The idea between the previous clause and this one is that these people have transgressed in, meaning against, the God of Israel by turning back from following after the Lord. It is a very strong accusation of apostasy. Verse 16 continues, in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord. In your building, to you, altar, to rebel you, the day in Yehovah. Here the word marad is used. It signifies the act of rebelling. The last time it was used was in Numbers 14, the chapter where the people rebelled against the Lord and were thus sentenced to perishing in the wilderness. It says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel, marad, against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are bred. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. 
do not fear them. They rejected the Lord, and it cost the lives of every single person above 20 years old, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. If the Lord was upset enough at the congregation to bring 40 years of wilderness wandering upon the people until all of the adults had perished, how could these people now think to escape his wrath? But more, another terrible incident is mentioned as a reminder. Verse 17, is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us? The words read, the little to us iniquity Peor, it is as if the sins of the past were still hanging heavily upon the people, and this would only make it worse. From what is said, one can assume Phineas is speaking because he reminded them of the incident of Peor. The account began with these words, Numbers 25, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Despite 24,000 people who worshipped Baal being killed, Phineas knew the stain remained upon them. Verse 17 continues, from which we are not cleansed till this day. The words here are rather amazing, coming from the son of the high priest. Asher lo hitarnu mimenu ad hayom hazeh which no purifying from until the day, the this. It is as if Phineas fully comprehended the words of Hebrews chapter 10 that would be written after the coming of Jesus Christ. It says there, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then... Would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Despite Israel having the annual Day of Atonement, there was no purification from what occurred, only a reminder of the guilt the nation bore. It is a most incredible statement to have been uttered at this early stage of the law of Moses. And not only had the sacrifices not purified them, the wrath that had been poured out on the people was only stayed because of the actions of Phineas. Verse 17 continues, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, it is not a plague Rather, vehi ha negef ba'adat Yehovah, and was the plague in congregation Yehovah. What occurred wasn't arbitrary or happenstance. Rather, it was a targeted outpouring of the wrath of the Lord against the congregation. Most of the same people that were alive at the time of the plague were still alive. The event wasn't long ago, and more turning from the Lord would only kindle his wrath even more. And the idea of building an altar isn't for the purpose of a single incidence of rebellion. Rather, an altar is something that is returned to again and again. Peor was a single offense. Imagine what continuous rebellion could result in. Verse 18, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. These words follow logically after the first clause of the previous verse, with the other clauses all being parenthetical. Also, in the words, the verb is imperfect, and there is an emphasis concerning the addressee. The little to us, iniquity, peor, and then the uh, parentheses, and then it continues on, and you are turning away this day from after Jehovah? They're incredulous. The statement smacks of total incredulity. How could anyone forget what happened there? And yet, you have forgotten, and you are set to make things infinitely worse for us. Verse 18 continues, and it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. This continues the chiasm with the discussion of rebellion. And it is you rebelling the day in Jehovah and tomorrow unto all congregation Israel, he will be angered. It is not just that these men will be held responsible for the transgression, but the entire congregation will be affected. The obvious meaning, without it having been said, is that war is brewing to stop the impending judgment of the Lord. 
with that understood, an offer of appeasement is made. Verse 19, nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord. Ellicott says this suggests that they might have built the altar in it, meaning the land, to sanctify it. But it would hardly be intelligible unless the altar was, as we supposed, on the eastern side. Ellicott thinks that the altar is built on their side and they built it to sanctify the land. But that doesn't logically follow. The assumption is that the Lord sanctifies the land. If the Lord dwells in Canaan, as is clearly the case because his tabernacle is there, then building an altar elsewhere would be pointless. The altar was certainly on the west side of the Jordan. But more importantly, the text reads that it was built above, upon, or over. The word is al, the Jordan. The Jordan itself is the focus of the location. It wouldn't make much sense to build an altar that wasn't central to all of the people west of the Jordan for their use if the purpose of the altar was to sanctify the land. But this altar is not centrally located at all. It is the thought of the land being unclean that the delegation proposes. As this is so, instead of worrying about another altar, the tribes are invited to cross over to, verse 19 continues, where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Asher shakan sham mishkan Yehovah veheaksu betokenu, where abides there, tabernacle Yehovah and take possession in our midst. The Mishkan, or tabernacle, was mentioned many, many times in Exodus and Numbers. The last time it was mentioned was in Numbers 31, verse 47, and it will only be mentioned here and in Joshua 22, 19, and 29. The Mishkan is the actual dwelling place of the Lord. That word is derived from Shakan, also used in this verse, which signifies to dwell. That Mishkan is surrounded by the Ohel, or tent. The entire edifice, including its surroundings, is known as the Mikdash, or sanctuary. It is the tabernacle itself that Phineas refers to, the place, the actual place where the Lord dwells. He appeals to the two and one-half tribes to return to Canaan, where the tabernacle resides, and thus where Jehovah resides, and take possession there. Verse 19 continues, but do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. More precisely, it reads, and not in Jehovah rebel, and with us not rebel. In your building to you altar from besides altar Jehovah our God. If the people feel that the land in which they dwell is defiled, for whatever reason, then they should determine to not live there. Building another altar won't solve the matter, and it is considered an act of rebellion against both the Lord and against the people of Israel. As this is so, then it could only lead to a state of war between the two. That is assured because another example from recent history is next introduced. Verse 20. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? Like the previous incident of Peor, this occurred just a few years before, not long after the people crossed the Jordan into Canaan. And Achan's crime didn't just bring punishment upon himself. Rather, the battle of Ai was lost and soldiers died because of it. Here's what it says in Joshua 7. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. In this, the matter had to be resolved before the Lord's presence would be with them again. As such, verse 20 finishes with, And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Once the perpetrator was identified, Achan, his family, and all he possessed were devoted to destruction. The point is that if these tribes do not turn from their act of rebellion, Israel will be forced to not only destroy them, but their families 
and all they possessed. Until that happened, the delegation believed that the Lord would not be with them. As for the names, Achan means serpent of trouble. Zerah, coming from Zarach, signifies rising of light. Concerning this passage, we have a lot more to learn before we can discover why it is included in the book of Joshua. We are being presented with typology concerning other things. And so we have to get through the passage before that can be fully fleshed out and explained. But I will challenge you right now. Does anybody see what's going on yet? What this is picturing? It's complicated, but it's also rather majestic what is being shown us in typology. As for the historical context of what is being seen, these events actually occurred. People like to debate if the Bible is true or not. 100%. Everything you read here is historically accurate. That is for certain. As has been seen, quite a few of the historical sites in Joshua are known. The location of this altar is debated, but there is at least one known possibility for where it is. The detail provided concerning the location and those who were involved in building it verifies its authenticity. If the story wasn't true, there would be very little value to it. Actually, there would be none. As for the moral nature of what is being said, there are several points worth considering. First, at the time of Joshua, it is evident that Israel was under sound leadership and Joshua was determined to have the people under him comply with the law. Oddly, however, Joshua is not mentioned at all in the Hebrew text of this chapter. His name is included in the last verse of the Greek text. Either way, the lack of prominence of his name in the passage is notable. Another point from a moral perspective is that if you are going to do something that affects others, it is always good to tell them what you are up to. Next week, we will see the reason for the actions taken by the tribes east of the Jordan, but no explanation would have been needed if they had told the western tribes what they were doing in advance. To finish today, we can turn to the comments of Matthew Henry who says the following. At first sight, it seemed a design to set up an altar against the altar at Shiloh. God is jealous for his own institutions. We should be so too, and afraid of everything that looks like or leads to idolatry. Corruptions in religion are best dealt with at first, but their prudence in following up this zealous resolution is no less commendable. Many an unhappy strife would be prevented or soon made up by inquiries into the matter of the offense. The remembrance of great sins committed formerly should engage us to stand on our guard against the beginnings of sin, for the way of sin is downhill. He is right. Later in Israel's history, they will not guard against such things nearly so carefully. That will eventually lead to ever-increasing sin and rebellion against the Lord. Eventually, there was no remedy, and the punishments promised in the law of Moses came upon them. Churches today are following the same unholy path. We are disregarding the warnings set forth in Scripture, and ever-increasing wickedness is being introduced right into what should be the sacred meeting place of the saints. For those who practice such things, it cannot go well. Let us be on guard and stand firm in our faith grounded in the word and acting faithfully to follow in the steps of the Lord who purchased us from the power of sin and the devil with his own precious blood. Jesus Christ came to redeem us from sin, not give us license to sin because we're not under law but under grace. The fact that we're under grace should mean we should be more faithful to the Lord, more willing to identify and weed sin out of our lives and to live in holiness. This is what grace should do. But way too often people take grace and they count it as license. I'm saved. I can do this because. That is an unholy and an unhealthy way to conduct your lives. Jesus Christ went to the cross and he suffered because of sin. That is the penalty that has to be meted out. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ in his substitutionary death died for your sins. Why would you want to stay in that any longer? Why would you want to do that? Live for Jesus Christ, but before you do, you have to be saved. And it's such a simple thing to do. All you need to do is believe what God has done. He sent his son into the world to die for sin. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. That is the gospel. That is what Paul identifies as the gospel. 
in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. If you can believe that simple message, the Bible says you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit and you will be saved. It is a guarantee of the future redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So please call on Jesus and then live for Jesus. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 106. It's verses 28 through 31. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds. And the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. Next week is Joshua 22, 21 through 29. Despite the odds, this sermon we will get through. It's entitled, The Lord God of Gods. Part two. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 52nd Joshua sermon. The Lord, he's been practicing that all week long. Perfectly done. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Please do it. Just trust in Jesus, follow him, be obedient to him. I gotta tell you, I typed, I told you a week or so ago, I typed the uh, first judge's sermon. I typed the second one this week, but I typed the first judge's sermon. And then this morning, I did the graphics for it. That means form everything up for the computer and all of the pictures, all that kind of stuff that needs to go into the online video. What a marvelous passage. I got to tell you what, just the typology in Judges, the first, I think it was eight verses of Judges is simply astonishing. I just, to start a chapter with that, I just can't wait to see what's in this book. I just can't wait. All right, I got a question for you. Please raise your hand if you can answer it. And if you do, you'll get this super yummy mango from my mango tree. We are down to the last week. If there are mangoes, please, if you haven't taken any, there's bags back there, please take a mango and uh, enjoy it. This may be the last week. They're just falling like rain. So there probably won't be any by next weekend. But raise your hand if you got it. What time of the year, what's going on? What time of the year did Solomon dedicate the temple? What was the dedication connected to? Somebody just read this this week, too, I know. Come on. This is super yummy. Can you be a little more specific? There's, there's, not the mango harvest. You're very close. Okay, I will tell you, that's kind of close, but it's not it, because they're all kind of around harvests. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, and remember they had it and they had it and they served another week in it because it was so exciting and so much was going on that they, they held the feast for another week and they all went home satisfied after that. I thought somebody would get that. Now, I'm ashamed of you, but um, that's okay. Um, I am not going to keep this because we've got like 8 billion of them at the house right now. But um, who, uh, uh, are you guys, are you gonna, do you like mangoes? Okay, uh, it's not ripe yet. It'll be ripe, and then all you, don't leave it in plastic because if you do, it'll it, never leave any fruit in plastic. All fruit needs to be kept either on the counter or in a uh, brown paper bag if you want it to ripen quicker. But this is enough to give all four of you a really big piece. Okay, so take this when you come up. Are you are you going to take the Lord's Supper? Okay, grab that when you come up. There you go. Um, and welcome again from Texas. It's so good to have you here. And I'm sorry about the heat. I did not order it, but. It is what it is, and uh, we'll get through it, and uh, we'll actually have some cool weather coming in uh, nine more months, so hang on. It is. It's hot in Texas, too, but it's, it's not as muggy there, is it? Yeah, it's dry heat. Yeah, he was in Texas for several years with the U.S. Air Force. Okay, I got a poem for you, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. This is, and hang on, you will get an explanation for what's going on in the third sermon. I just, the typology is always wonderful, but it is connected. I told you this last week. It is connected to the typology of the first sermon in this, this chapter. We did that. That was a standalone, great typology, but this is kind of connected. It's the Lord is trying to cover all the, I'm not trying, sorry, Lord. The Lord is covering all of the bases 
so that when we come into the new covenant and we look back, we can say, we know this is correct, we know this is incorrect, simply by typology. That's the wonderful thing about going through the Bible in this way, is we can know, is it a pre-tribulation rapture? Is it a mid-tribulation rapture? Is it is a post-tribulation rapture? Or is there no such thing as the rapture? The typology tells you. It's told us several times in the Old Testament, okay? The Lord wants us to know these things and not to be confused. And so he gives us typological representations. And this is a really fun one. Okay, the Lord God of gods, part one. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan on that date, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, an altar impressive and great. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and of Manasseh, half the tribe, have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region of the Jordan, on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation, without haw or hem, of the children of Israel, gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe, the Manasseh, with words to tell, into the land of Gilead, and with him ten rulers, one ruler from each of the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house as well, of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, these words they were then conveying, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord? What is the meaning? Please open your mouth and tell, in that you have built for yourselves an altar, that you might rebel this day against the Lord in this way. Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us, from which we are not cleansed till this day? Although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord as well. And it shall be if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us according to our word. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us. This action is so odd by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing in his obliquity? And wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons you teach us in the word. You teach us historical lessons. You teach us moral lessons. You teach us lessons about the coming of Christ and so much more. Thank you for these lessons that help us solidify our faith in the word and our doctrine as we continue in the word. Thank you for this precious word. Thank you for your son who gave his life so that we could have reconciliation with you. All hail the name of Jesus. We thank you, O God, for what you have done. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.